Amen, amen. Hey, grab a seat, and as you do, grab a copy of God's Word and turn with me to Matthew chapter 5. If you're newer to uh, studying the Bible, the book of Matthew is the very first book in the New Testament, and so if you would, uh, turn there with us this morning. And as you turn there, let me just ask this uh, pretty basic question. Um, If someone asked you to describe what a blessed life looks like, how would you describe what it means to be blessed? Right, we, we say that often, and, and even our culture says, man, we're so blessed, or you know, on social media, hashtag blessed. Like, what, how, would we, how would we really go about defining what it means to be blessed? What are the characteristics that you would use? Uh, in our culture, often, as we, as we hear people talk about being blessed or the blessings in their life, a lot of times, the focus can um, um, zero in on material blessings. Uh, the, the, it's seasons where uh, we're prospering materially. And certainly we thank God for his provision in our life, but I think all of us know there's more to a blessed life than that. Uh, we can then, because we know there's more than that, we can go, okay, uh, what it means to live a blessed life uh, has to do with relational riches, uh, to be a relationally rich. But how would you describe what it means to be blessed? And I ask that because I wonder if we have come to embrace the way Jesus describes those who are blessed. And so in our summer series, we're turning to the very beginning, the, basically the first eight statements that Jesus makes in the most famous sermon he ever preached that we know as the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, These first uh, eight statements, uh, they have a title all in themselves. We call them the Beatitudes, and we're going to go a bit of an overview of what these, what Beatitudes mean, why they are called that. But at the very beginning of the sermon, Jesus begins with eight back-to-back statements. Blessed are, blessed are, blessed are, blessed are. And if we're honest with ourselves, the way he finishes those statements are so counterintuitive. They're so countercultural to how our culture would finish that statement of what it means to be blessed. And so it's so important for us to turn to the very beginning of this sermon and understand what Jesus has to say of what the blessed life looks like. Now, we got to understand what's happening here in the Gospel of Matthew as a whole. If you've ever studied the Gospel of Matthew, there is a really one predominant theme that Matthew is very interested in, and it's the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven. Uh, right before we come to the Sermon on the Mount, we find this summary of Jesus' ministry in Matthew 4.23. It says this. It says, And he went throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, and proclaiming the gospel... The gospel of what? The gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. And so uh, this is a summary statement of Jesus' ministry. And then we come to the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 5, and we got to understand basically the two big pieces that the Sermon on the Mount is broken into. In the beginning, with the Beatitudes, Jesus is unpacking the character of what a kingdom of heaven citizen looks like. It's a character thing. The Beatitudes are about a character thing. It's about God forming a heart to not look like citizens of this kingdom and this world, but instead citizens of the kingdom of heaven. 
after the Beatitudes, kind of with the rest of the Sermon on the Mount, you get into the conduct. Now, in light of that, what do kingdom of heaven citizens live like? And Jesus, just like Paul, just like what we see in the rest of scripture, is starting with character before he's getting to conduct. And so this summer, we get the great benefit of looking at these Beatitudes and asking God to form in us the heart, the character of citizens who are not of the kingdom of this world, but of the kingdom of God. Now, each week, we will take one of these Beatitudes. We'll be in this series for eight weeks. Um, But before we jump into breaking these Beatitudes down one by one, we need to go over a bit of an overview of the Beatitudes as a whole, because I'm going to argue throughout this series We can't really understand each of its parts until we understand it in its whole. So uh, let's go over a few just overview things as it pertains to the Beatitudes. The first thing I'll ask is this, where do we find them? Where do we find the Beatitudes? I've mentioned this a bit already. Uh, The Beatitudes are these statements that are found at the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, Jesus is unpacking uh, for his people uh, what it means to be a citizen of heaven, and he begins with these statements right here. And now that leads to this question, what are they? What are Beatitudes? Now, if you're a note taker, you might want to write this down. Uh, Beatitudes are a pronouncement, a pronouncement of those who are blessed, usually accompanied with a promise as to why. A Beatitude is a pronouncement of those who are blessed. We're going to see that again and again and again. And it's usually accompanied with a promise as to why they are blessed. Uh, As we talk about what the Beatitudes are, we probably need to talk about this. As Jesus says, blessed are, blessed are, blessed are, blessed are, what does that mean? Often that's translated happy. Happy are the poor in spirit, as we will see here today. But, and, and I would agree with that. I think it does mean happy, but we need to take that one level deeper because happy in our day can be used to describe a lot of things. We're happy when that show we like on Netflix. Uh, we're happy because we're hanging out with friends. We're happy because we just got a raise. What is, what is the happiness that Jesus is getting at here? It's not a fleeting happiness based on circumstances of this world. The happiness that Jesus is getting at here is happy because we're approved of God. It's that kind of happiness. Martin Lloyd-Jones, uh, my, my, kind of one of my preaching heroes, he says the Beatitudes are unpacking those who are to be congratulated because it's how God would congra- congratulate. That's big. If we want to know how would God congratulate, this is what the Beatitudes are unpacking. Uh, It leads to this third question, why do they matter? The short answer to that is Jesus said it, right? But there's a bit of a longer answer. Why why does it matter that we spend eight weeks of our summer on uh, looking at the Beatitudes? And and I'll say it like this and try to hang on every word here. They matter because as humans, we will define what a blessed life looks like based on the value system of the kingdom you identify with. Let me say that again. As human beings, we will define what a blessed life looks like based on the value system of the kingdom you identify with. So, if the kingdom of this world values possessions, prestige, position, 
and we're a citizen of that, then that's what we'll value. And that's how we'll define what it means to be blessed. But if we're not of this world, and if we are of the kingdom of heaven, then we need to know how Jesus defines what, the, what that blessing looks like. So it's so important that we look at this. Uh, this fourth question, how do they function? This is really important. If, if, if we're going to understand this series as a whole, we need to understand this question. How do the Beatitudes function? Because what we can do and what I've done you know, for a long time in my life is we can look at the Beatitudes too individualistically. So we can look and say, blessed are the poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Ooh, that's a good statement. Okay, on to the next one. Blessed are those who mourn for they shall be comforted. Mmm, convicting. And we can begin to piece these out. But what we need to understand is the Beatitudes are actually working in a beautiful whole. You can't step to the next one without passing through the previous one. Uh, Colin Smith, he's a pastor in the Chicagoland area. He's done a great, uh, he, he's written a great study on the Beatitudes. I would commend this to you for this summer as we preach through it, Momentum by Colin Smith. But in it, he talks about how interconnected the Beatitudes are. They're is no mourning without passing through an understanding of the poverty of your, your poorness in spirit. There is no meekness without passing through mourning. And, and the visual he uses in this, it's like we're swinging from rings to rings. And so we, we can't see these two isolated or individualized. We see the Beatitudes beautifully working as a whole. And how are they beautifully working as a whole? These are the characteristics shaped by the gospel in our life. It's our poverty of spirit that leads us to the gospel. It's the fact that we're mourning that poverty of spirit that leads us to the gospel. It's the gospel that works meekness in us. It's the gospel that leads us to hunger and thirst for righteousness. You with me? And so these all are working beautifully in harmony with each other. And then the last thing I'll say by way of introduction is this. Uh, what's the challenge for us as we go through this study? A challenge for us as a church would be that we memorize all of these beatitudes. And now, if you were a part of our church last spring and I stood up and was like, hey, let's memorize the whole book of 1 Peter together, okay? Like, it's not as daunting as that, okay? It's basically one verse a week. And so today I'm gonna preach on blessed are the poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Let's commit that to memory by next Sunday. And let's just build on this so that by the time we get through the summer, we have all the Beatitudes memorized together. We in on that? All in? All in? Yeah, we're going to do it. Let's do it. Let's do it. So let me pray, and then I want to take us right into the beginning of this sermon. Father, will you help us? And Lord, I say that every week, and I don't want it to be empty words. We really need your help. The Beatitudes, Lord Jesus, that you spoke are so counterintuitive. They're so countercultural that unless you give us spiritual eyes to see and spiritual ears to hear, we might understand the technicalities of the words used, but we'll miss the whole heart behind them. Lord, as we look at what it means to be poor in spirit, we need the power of your spirit to open up the eyes of our spirit so we can see that. As we delve into this promise that the kingdom of heaven belongs, Lord, we need you to give us eyes to see that. So, Lord, now we just, as we go to your word, we ask for your help. In Jesus' name, amen. Matthew 5, verse 1. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. Now, I just want to stop there because I really want to set the context, the scene of 
Who's listening as Jesus is talking? There's two groups mentioned in verse 1. What are the two groups mentioned? Crowds and disciples. And so I believe what we have here is we're just told in Matthew 4, like the crowds are coming to Jesus. Jesus goes up on this mountain in the Sea of Galilee region, and he sits down, and his disciples are the inner circle listening in, and Jesus is speaking to them. Here's what it means to be a citizen in the kingdom of heaven. But what you have, I believe, in the background is another circle of the crowds listening in on this teaching here. And so he goes up, he sat, sits down, his disciples come to him, verse 2, and he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And with that opening line of a sermon, I, I will just tell you something. Jesus begins a sermon in a way that you would never be taught in seminary how to begin your sermon. It's like, hey, start in a way that grabs everyone. Make everyone feel good. In the first, Jesus is like, within the first six words, he's like, you're all spiritually bankrupt. Y'all need help. And he, then he says it, it, that, that's, that's blessedness. The reality of that is a blessing. And so I, I want to take this, 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 this one sentence, and I want to break it into its two parts, but, you know, just in how we're thinking about the message. I want to focus on everything up to the comma in the first part of the message, and then we'll focus on the promise that comes after the comma. Uh, but I, I'll say this first part and this first point like this. Understanding I'm spiritually bankrupt is the path to happiness. You're not going to get that at the self-help seminar last night downtown. <laughs> Understanding I'm spiritually bankrupt is the path to happiness. Uh, you need to know that as I talk about poor in spirit today, I'm going to use poor in spirit and spiritually bankrupt interchangeably. Again, Martin Lloyd-Jones, as he helps us understand what does it mean to be poor in spirit, he calls it spiritual bankruptcy, and I love that. To be bankrupt means to be completely lacking in the resource in which we're talking about. To be completely lacking in the resource. So think about this six words into the sermon. Jesus has said, you are all completely lacking in any spiritual resource apart from me. Six words into the sermon. We are confronted beautifully by the most loving Savior that we are totally helpless, can do nothing on our own, and have zero spiritual life and zero spiritual resources. We bring nothing to Christ. He brings everything. This is not a 50-50 deal. I'm going to clean some things up, Jesus. I'm going to get some things right. I'm going to, I'm going to wash my hands. I've got to get over this sin thing. And then I'm going to come to you. I'm going to bring my 50, Jesus. You bring your 50. Make me a little bit better. No, we are spiritually bankrupt. We come to him with, like, empty accounts. And we get the riches of Christ. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who are spiritually bankrupt and know it. 
So do we know that we're spiritually bankrupt? No, I, I know, I know, I know, especially if you've grown up in church. Theologically, you know that, you've been told that, but do you believe you're spiritually bankrupt? It's a question I've had to ask myself all week. Brock, do you really believe that? Or do you believe that you actually have something to bring to this whole proposition? So what are the, what's the profile of the spiritually bankrupt? What are some things we can look for in our life to go, do I understand that apart from Jesus, I'm, I have complete poverty of spirit? Uh, the first thing I'll say of a profile of spiritually bankrupt is this. They're desperately dependent. Desperately dependent. Someone who understands they are completely lacking in any spiritual vitality, life, or resources is completely dependent on another, a savior, a messiah, for those resources. Okay, you, th that, that begs a question though. How do we really know if we're desperately dependent? Here we are, are we ready for it? It's convicting, are we ready? Look at our prayer life. How many of you woke up yesterday, you're like, man, you know what aspect of my life I'm really crushing right now? It's prayer. <laughs> I know there's prayer warriors in the room, but I, I can tell you for the vast majority of us, how lacking do we feel, right? I came across a bit of a, a just a, a complicated issue this week, and I'm just over there wheeling and dealing. What if we did this? What if we tried this? What if we moved this? What if we did this? And I'm like, hey, dummy, have you prayed? Nope. You just want to stop and pray right now? Yeah, that's probably a great idea. Our prayer life indicates the level of desperate dependence in which we live. And this is why this is so important. This is so important because I'm telling you, the prevailing religion of our day is self. Self is the prevailing religion of our day. It's self-esteem, self-will, self-this, self-that. Just get yourself stronger. Just feel better about yourself. Just, just, no, no, no. And what the, what the Beatitudes do, what this poor in spirit statement does is Jesus turns our eyes down on this thin veneer of ice of self that we've been walking on and we have to go, ah, I'm going to crash through that. This can't hold me. Self-will, self-esteem, self-strength, self, -esteem, self, -strength, self -th it can't hold me. Why? Because I'm, I, I'm spiritually bankrupt. I must crash through this ice of self and fall into the arms of a savior. I am desperately dependent. I can't do it. You can't do it. Christ can. You can't be it. Christ can. You can't accomplish it, Christ can. This is what those who are desperately dependent understand. This is what the spiritually bankrupt know. Uh, the second thing we would see in the profile of the spiritually bankrupt is this, they come humbly empty-handed. I'll unpack this a bit. The spiritually bankrupt comes to the Lord humbly empty-handed. There's nothing we can bring to Christ. And yet, most of us in this room spend our lives building a resume. Building a resume professionally, building a resume of accomplishments personally, and we're just, we, we just can spend our life building a resume, and if we're not careful, that mindset can infiltrate our spiritual life, and we can think that one day we're gonna show up to the Lord one day and be like, hey, Jesus, you wanna see my resume? It's pretty good. Remember 2006? 
Did you see that over there? That, you know, we helped out over there. There, we will not bring and pull out a resume when we're standing before our Savior. You want to know the one word on our resume, the only word that will matter in his presence? Christ. You are my resume. There's nothing I can bring. And that doesn't mean it doesn't matter how we live once we come to Christ. No, no, no. We live to bring him honor and glory and praise in every way. But there's nothing we can bring in our spiritual bankruptcy to earn right standing before him. I love the lyrics of Rock of Ages, Cleft for Me, the old hymn. How many of you were rocking out to that this week, right? Don't miss the beauty of the theology in the hymns, though. Look at, look at what these lyrics say. Nothing in my hand I bring, simply to the cross I cling. Naked come to thee for dress, helpless look to thee for grace. Foul I to the fountain fly, wash me, Savior, or I die. That's someone who understands their spiritual poverty. Wash me, Savior, or I die. So it doesn't matter if the culture looks at us, our family, our life, and says, man, they got it all together. Look at all they have. Look at their riches. Look at their, look at their. The day we come and stand before Jesus, we will stand naked of all the accomplishments of this kingdom. And we will gaze into the eyes of the one welcoming us into his presence in that poverty. Paul understood it. Look at what he writes in Philippians chapter three. For we are the circumcision who worship by the spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. And then he says, you wanna talk spiritual resume? Let's talk spiritual resume. Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also. If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. He's like, you think you have a great resume? Let's talk about mine. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law of Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. Says, you want to talk spiritual resume? Let's talk spiritual resume. Mine's pretty good. Then look at what he says. Then he literally tears it before our eyes. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as trash, as rubbish, as garbage in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. And he's like, now let's worship a bit, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection, may share, the, share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. He's like, you want to talk resumes? Let's talk resume. Here's mine. Here's what that means. It's garbage. It's trash. You want to know what matters? Christ. I'm poor. I've brought myself to the riches of Christ. Then uh, the spiritually bankrupt, once they know they're desperately dependent, once they know they need to come empty-handed to the cross, then, then, they, then they're this. They're deeply thankful. They live with a prevailing thankfulness. 
They live with a prevailing thankfulness uh, that, that transcends the ebbs and the flows, the highs and the lows of living in this world here and now. Because they have Christ. They are deeply, deeply thankful. Now, one more thing I want to say about poor in spirit or spiritual bankruptcy before we move to the promise after the comma. Um, and it's this. Often, not always, but often, God walks us down a path to reveal that spiritual poverty to us or to reveal it more to us. And the path that God often walks us down in this life to reveal how desperately dependent, how spiritually poor we are are apart from him is the path of brokenness. Don't despise paths of brokenness. None of us showed up here today, you know, like going, you know what I hope happens? I hope the Lord just breaks me. But don't despise the paths of brokenness. Why? Because brokenness begets blessedness. Brokenness begets blessedness. It's the paths of brokenness that are often the big neon signs in front of us that shout, I am completely poor apart from Christ. And so if you've come to church today and life is unraveling or your reputation's been wounded or your sin has been exposed or you've been physically weakened by an illness or your resources have been drained, embrace the brokenness. The Lord's just whispering in his kindness to you, fall into the arms of your rich Savior. That's how we often have to pass through there. And so he starts and he says, blessed are the poor in spirit. Now, we, we have to be asking, how in the world is this blessedness? Like, if you're new to Christianity, you're like, this sounds like the most depressing place I've ever been in my life. No, like, we have to get to the promise. All of this is happiness, blessedness, being approved of God because of how the sentence ends. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Why? Say why. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Who does the kingdom of heaven belong to? Those who own their spiritual poverty. Those who know they're spiritually bankrupt. And in their knowing of their spiritual bankruptcy have turned in faith to the riches of the Savior, Jesus Christ. The second thing we need to see is this. The kingdom of heaven belongs to those who know they are spiritually bankrupt. It is our bankruptcy that makes the gospel the gospel. The good news the good news that we cannot save ourselves, that we're uh, completely on E as it pertains to any spiritual life, and a Savior, the second person of the Trinity, the Son of God, came through this earth to rescue my poor brokenness? That's what makes the good news the good news. Poor in spirit, those who know it, Theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Now, what is the kingdom of heaven? Now, I can't answer that in its fullness in the next seven minutes. 
But I, I will say, uh, Graham Goldsworthy is a guy who's done really great work. Uh, just if you're a reader, um, uh, The Go Gospel and Kingdom by Graham Goldsworthy is a fantastic read. Um, but he helps us understand a bit pretty succinctly what are we talking about when we're talking about the kingdom? It can get lost on us because we don't live in a monarchy. And so some of the, 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 the imagery of the kingdom can get lost on us. Here's what Graham Goldsworthy says. What is the kingdom of God? The New Testament has a great deal to say about the kingdom, but we may best understand this concept in terms of the relationship of ruler to subjects. That is, and hear this part, there is a king who rules, a people who are ruled, and a sphere where the rule is recognized as taking place. A king who rules, a people who are ruled, let's not get those two backwards, right? And then a sphere in which that rule, that reign is recognized. And so he goes on to say, uh, the kingdom of God involves God's people in God's place under God's rule. How good does that sound, people of God? God's people in God's place under God's rule. Now, as it comes to the kingdom of God, there's an already and a not yet reality to it. How has the kingdom of God already come? Jesus inaugurates the kingdom in his coming. In Luke chapter 17, uh, there, you know, there's this conversation, of, hey, one day God's going to establish his kingdom. Look at what Jesus says here. It's a mic drop moment. Jesus was a master of that. He says, nor will they say, look, here it is, or there, for behold, the kingdom of God is in the midst of you. Boom. He's saying the kingdom of God is right here. In the second person of the Trinity, coming to earth, he is inaugurated, bringing the kingdom of God. The moment we put our faith in Jesus Christ, the spirit of God dwelling in us, we are God's people seeking to live out uh, 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 the life under God's rule, letting God reign in our life. It's the already reality, but there's a not yet reality. Last week, Jeremy preached to us from Revelation 21. And we're longing for these new heavens and this new earth where we will be God's people in God's place, under God's rule, unhindered by sin. The, the shades taken off our eyes to see him in his fullness. Unaffected by the brokenness of a fallen world in which we're living, and we'll never pick up the heaven times on a Monday morning and cringe over the headlines. We just never will. We will rejoice. It's why, and I, I know I do this a lot, but it, I want us to understand the theology that's in the songs that we sing. It's why that last song we sing. Oh, praise the name of the Lord our God. Praise his name forevermore, forever, forevermore. And we're going to be there in the forevermore. This is the kingdom he will establish completely, fully, and it's in the future, and it's coming, and we can't wait. But those who will inherit that kingdom, those who are experiencing the kingdom of heaven at work in their life now, those who will inherit the kingdom in its fullness are those who know and own that I, Jesus, apart from you, I am spiritually bankrupt. Amen. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. So if you showed up to church today and your thing ain't working for you, 
Jesus is a pretty good savior. If you're like, man, I don't know what else to do. Let's just go to church today. This is the kind of savior you need. If, as I said earlier, life's unraveling and you're coming face to face, toe to toe with this reality that, man, at one time I thought I was someone, I, I, I don't know who I am. I don't know what, I don't know up from down. I, I'm a nobody. Praise the Lord. Jesus loves nobodies. Join the crowd of nobodies in the room with you. This is who he's come for. Now, I think this is an important question for today and for every, every sermon of this series. What's the application from today? You know, we're, we're, most of us in this room, are pro, we're Westerners. We're like, okay, Pastor, what, what do I do? Just tell me what to do. Give me the three steps. What should I do this week? Well, the application can't be go, go be more poor in spirit. You're like, oh, shoot, that was my application. But what does that look like? Do we just go become a monk? What does that look like? We, we actually can't pursue poverty of spirit. We can't look internal to make ourselves more poor in spirit. We can't look at ourselves to become more poor in spirit. In fact, the looking at ourselves will make us the opposite of poor in spirit. Where do we got to look? We got to look to God. We got to ask the Lord this week as we're reading his Bible to open our eyes to see him in his grandeur and his majesty and for who he is. When we're praying and talking to him, we got to be in awe that the God who created everything would want to talk to us and hear from us. We have to look around at his creation. We have to look at the blessings that he's lavished on us and we say, God, you are so good. Only by getting our eyes vertically, gazing on who he is, do we get a right view of who we are. Do we recognize our poverty of spirit, our spiritual bankruptcy in such a way that it doesn't make us depressed or despondent? It, it makes us turn our eyes to the riches of Jesus Christ and we go, we're rich. Why? Because we have Christ. And so we look to God this week. And on that note, let me just ask this. What kind of God, holy, creator of all, unblemished, completely pure in every moral way. What kind of God like that would invite a bunch of spiritually bankrupt people into his kingdom? A gracious, merciful, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love kind of God. We're not gonna get to heaven one day and look around at each other and be like, man, you are awesome, you are awesome, you are awesome. We're gonna get to heaven one day and we're just going to gaze upon Jesus Christ and we're going to say, how in the world do we, do I get to be in eternity with you? What kind of holy, awesome, majestic God invites a bunch of spiritually bankrupt people into his kingdom. A gracious, merciful, long-suffering, loving God. Amen? You stand your feet. Father, will you drive that reality deep into our heart now? 
Lord, I pray in, in a way that only your spirit can do. As we've just been confronted by the truth of your word that we're spiritually bankrupt people, that you would bring great comfort to us in the midst of this. That we would walk out leaping and rejoicing in our heart because we now see, we understand, we have nothing but Jesus, you are our everything. We can't, but you can. We're poor and you're rich. And by faith, we inherit all of that by being in you. Jesus, we just say thank you. Thank you that you've looked down and you've seen us in our sin and you're omniscient, all-knowing, and you count not the sum of them. You've cast them in the sea and you invite us into your kingdom and into your presence, even in our spiritual bankruptcy. Why? Because we've been robed in the righteousness and the riches of Christ. And all we can say is thank you, Lord, for that. We love you. And we pray all this now in the name of Jesus, the King of kings, who invites spiritually bankrupt people into his kingdom.